0: Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University.
1: Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. Today's guest is Dr. Rudolph Leibel, Christopher J. Murphy, professor of diabetes research, professor of pediatrics and medicine at Columbia University. Dr. Leibel has a distinguished history of studying the genetics of body weight regulation Uh, adipose tissue biochemistry, cellular physiology, and a number of other factors that are quite relevant in today's world of increasing body weight. We're going to talk in this particular podcast about the genetics of body weight regulation. Welcome.
0: Thank you very much for having me, Cal. So I'm
1: happy to have you here, and um, I've long admired your work, and uh, see it as right at the cutting edge of understanding some of the factors that are driving the high body weights in the population. And given that you're an expert on genetics, let's talk about that a bit. Uh, Why is it important to understand the genetics of something like obesity? Isn't just a, a clear matter of people are eating more and exercising less, and that's why they're getting fat? The genetics of obesity, like the
0: genetics of high blood pressure or risk of heart attack, is what we call a complex genetic issue as opposed to, for example, the genetics of sickle cell disease where you have a single gene which is largely determinant of the risk of the disease. And when we deal with complex genetic issues where we know that there are multiple genes involved and that the environment has a powerful influence on whether those genes become fully expressed. We use different techniques to analyze them or to look for the genes. And one of the ways of getting a handle or a feel for whether or not a disorder like obesity or a problem like obesity or diabetes is due to genetic factors is to look at how frequently the disease, the problem is correlated within twin pairs. And there are two types of twins. There are identical twins who are genetically identical, or largely genetically identical, and non-identical twins who are in relationship to each other as brother and sister are, but are born at the same time, same intrauterine environment, and can be selected to be of the same sex. And when we do a comparison between how highly correlated obesity is between mono, single egg twins, and dizygous, or non-identical twins, we can estimate how heritable or how much genes play a role. And for obesity, it looks like 60%, perhaps even as much as 70% of the risk of becoming obese is actually conveyed by genes compared to something like maybe 40 or 35% for breast cancer, 50% for schizophrenia. So these are examples of genetic disorders, and among them, obesity is one of the most, as we say, highly
1: heritable. Let's talk about what that number 60% means. It sounds like a lot. <clears throat> And as it gets thrown around in the press and things, people interpret it different ways. People say that, well, what that means is that 60% of the people in the population who are overweight are so, for genetic reasons, and the other 40% are not. uh, The other people interpret it differently. Can you explain what the number means? This
0: is a very important
1: point. What what that number that I recited,
0: the so-called heritability of 60% means, is that within the same environment, exactly the same environment, two individuals, one with and one without the genetic risk, this will be the difference in the risk that they will become obese. Having said that, it's very clear that the environment is really a critical element in whether anybody gets obese, because if the environment is not adequately permissive, if you have starvation, restriction of food intake by environmental events, very few or no individuals will be obese. So really what this says is that within a given environment, within a given circumstance with regard to access to calories, amounts of physical activity, the risk of one individual becoming obese versus another is 30, 40, 50 percent greater.
1: So would it be safe to say the following, that the environment is really the responsible agent for determining whether obesity happens, because you get you could get some country, Somalia, Ethiopia, where they're under periods of starvation a good bit of the time, where you get very little more more now than before, but you get almost no obesity, and then you get rampant obesity in a country like the U.S. That the genetics really tell us. Uh, who's most susceptible, or how much weight given individuals will gain once the environment changes. Would that be a fair way to characterize it? That's an absolutely correct point, and it puts the emphasis
0: where it really belongs, which is not necessarily primarily on the genetics, but the genetics as a way of understanding how an individual will respond to a given environment. That in turn tells us how to prevent or treat the disorder in a way that obviously we're not going to do by adjusting a person's genes, at least not in the foreseeable future. So it's very, this is a very critical point because I think some people would, hearing me state the relative degree of genetic risk, think that it's an insoluble or insurmountable or immutable problem, which it absolutely is not. That because by adjusting the environment, one can shift the relative degree of obesity of an entire population and drag down, in a sense, the individuals who are at the highest levels of
1: obesity. Is the science sufficiently advanced to be able to identify particular individuals who are most susceptible? So, for example, could within a family, could you identify a child who among his siblings or her siblings is most susceptible to weight gain? Could you identify families that are at particular risk and The uh, obvious corollary of that is, could they be the targets of special attention or intervention that may help prevent obesity? Right. So this is another very
0: interesting and important question, and I would answer it in sort of two steps. One, we and others have identified perhaps 40 or 50 genes that are clearly implicated in the regulation of body weight in animals or humans or both. We don't yet understand the way in which these genes interact with each other or with the environment to ultimately determine the risk of obesity, which is clearly represented by these twin studies. So the short answer to your question is no. If I had your DNA and studied it with all of the genes that I know about and all of the ways that I know about, I would not be able to effectively predict a great deal of the uh, risk of of individual becoming obese, perhaps a small amount. The real answer, the, the current answer to that question is the best predictor is just to look at the family. In other words, if there are obese parents and obese cousins and aunts and uncles, the risk to the child that you may be interested in or to the other individual is as clearly indicated by that observation, more clearly indicated, I would say, than by anything that we can do with genetic analysis at this, at this point. At some point, and I don't think today is that far off, the answer to your question would probably be yes, but I would again say that even then, the easiest way to make this prediction and probably equally accurate would be just to look at other members of the family.
1: You know you said that you gave an optimistic prediction that maybe we're not too far off from the point where we could predict who has the most genetic susceptibility. But with 40 or 50 genes implicated, and I imagine those happening in different amounts in different people, I could imagine a quite a confusing and complex picture within any individual and in trying to trying to predict their risk. That's exactly why I answered the question the way that I did.
0: I think ultimately, the answer will be yes, we could make such a prediction. Mm-hmm because we will understand better in a given individual which of those 40 or 50 genes, and there may even be more of them, is dispositive with regard to their particular individual risk, which may be conveyed by as few as five or six or eight major genetic differences. Again, this remains to be seen. Having said that, though, I think, again, looking at a family, taking a careful family history, will probably, at least at this point, give you the same amount of information. The reason for wanting to know the genes, in addition to the point of your question, is ultimately to understand the mechanisms well enough to be able to intervene by, in addition to whatever environmental approaches may be taken, ultimately by medical or other interventions to either treat existing obesity or prevent incipient obesity, and perhaps even ultimately to being able to Decide for a given individual which aspects of the environment are most important. It would not surprise me at all to learn that for some individuals, aspects of diet are more important for others, levels of physical activity, for others a combination of those, and understanding that genetics may ultimately be able, may make it possible for us to say something about that aspect
1: of the disorder, which is clearly beyond our reach now. This connects nicely with the question I was going to ask anyway. and I think you might have just partially answered it. But you could imagine a lot of different things being passed from parent to child through their genes uh, that could affect body weight. So hunger, are some people hungrier than others and need more food? Do other people have satiety issues and they just feel like they're not as full with the same amount of food? Um, uh, energy expenditure issues, metabolism, faster and slower from one person to another. Um, the amount of it, calories people burn from physical activity. I imagine you could create a mile long list of things that could uh, be passed along from parent to children. Uh, where does the research stand on identifying what actually gets passed along that might make some people more vulnerable to obesity? So, again, I think you've put your finger on a very
0: important aspect of these studies. We know just based on basic considerations of physics and chemistry, that the way that an individual gets obese, there has to be either by eating more than they spend or, in another perspective, spending less than they eat in terms of energy. So you would predict, and you would be correct, that genes that we and others have found affect both aspects of food intake refinements of aspects of food intake like satiety or hunger. There are genes that affect these differentially and separately. There are other genes that affect rates of energy expenditure. There are even genes that have been identified in animals, quite striking actually, that are related to the amount of physical activity that the animal will wish or voluntarily perform. So the answer to your question, I'm quite certain, is that genes affecting all of these aspects of the if you will, the equation of body weight, are uh, present and have been identified. Whether we've got the right ones or all of them or the right variants in the ones that we have, this remains to be seen. But the genetics will and I think do affect all aspects of energy homeostasis, as as we refer to it, all the way from energy intake, energy expenditure, and the way that calories are deposited.
1: Do you think there is any way to uh, make observations of people out there in the world and use that to try to guess what the main genetic mechanisms are? So, for example, if we see people, uh, just take hunger and satiety as, as examples of this. <clears throat> Let's just say we observe people, and in the population, X percent of people seem to have difficulties with hunger, and Y percent have difficulties with satiety, and X exceeds Y then could you use observations like that to say, well, now we're going to start really looking at the gene that affects hunger over the one that affects satiety because it looks to be the the more important of the two aspects. I don't know if that makes any sense or not, but is there any way to connect up the observations of people out there in the world with the genetic discoveries? So
0: uh, to answer this question um, so that everybody understands what we're talking about, when Kelly or I refer to hunger and satiety in a more sort of common parlance. What we're referring to is desire to eat a meal. That would be hunger. And satiety would be the point in that meal at which you stop. And Kelly is making the important point that these are distinguishable experimentally in animals, and they are clearly distinguishable in humans. And there are humans who have a tendency to have more meals starting, others who have uh, later meal ending. Having said that, um, I think that the, the distinction, at least in terms of how we understand it in large populations, is not ready for prime time yet in the, in the, uh, in the aspect that you describe it, and raises the other or another very interesting point, which is that the difference in energy intake between an individual who is going to become obese and an individual who is not going to become obese is actually generally very, very small. And the difference is integrated in a sense over long periods of time. So the subtlety of these differences has caused us, me, people in this field like myself, yourself, to have difficulty actually adequately defining over time exactly which aspect of this intake behavior is driving the increment in body weight, since even if we measure something as what seems as simple as total caloric intake, we can't measure that to adequate adequacy uh, accuracy to be able to ultimately define this mechanism. Having said that, in response to your question, I would... I think, based on my own work in this field and others, that it's probably going to turn out that the genes and the physiology that we're sort of alluding to indirectly in terms of risk of becoming obese probably is more important on the energy intake side than on the energy expenditure side. That's probably the major area where this difference exists, or certainly a major area, but refining that to whether it's a question of hunger or satiety or both, this is going to take much better measures of food intake than we actually have available to us. This is a fascinating area because without those measures, we won't be able to make decisions like the one that you're asking about. We can do this quite readily in animals,
1: but not in humans. You know, something that you alluded to in your last comment, I'd like to follow up on it's the relative importance of what people are eating and how much they're exercising or how little they're exercising the development of obesity. There's a lot of controversy about that in the field and has very important implications uh, not the least of which would be where do you put your emphasis in national policy for trying to do prevention of obesity. And uh, I know people come down on different parts, different sides of this issue. Uh, You mentioned that you thought the food intake part was more important than the, the physical inactivity or energy expenditure part. What leads you to say that? Well, as I said,
0: ultimately, this is a question of the balance between energy intake and energy expenditure. One has to be greater than the other or energy expenditure less than intake, however you want to look at it. And based on what we know about the genetics in animals and what we know about the cost the energy cost of physical activity which in humans actually is quite low you have to do a lot of physical activity to burn a significant number of calories whereas with a couple of major bites of a uh, highly attractive relatively high fat food you can take in literally within a couple of bites 2 or 300 calories that would cost you an hour of exercise to spend, it just seems intuitively more likely, and I think, again, some of the genetics support this, that it's on the energy intake side that the major effect occurs. It's not that exercise is bad. Exercise is a great thing for many reasons, but it can't be counted upon to make up for um, uh, relatively small extra bites of high calorically dense food. That's, the I think, the, the way I look at it.
1: So why don't we end with the following question. I know it's hard to prognosticate, but I'd like to have you peer into the future, if you would, and see if you could tell us what you think the next generation, what we'll learn from the next generation of genetics work, genetic studies. I think that, that the... N- as you refer to the next generation of
0: genetic studies are going to reveal to us the answer to the question which I've raised several times but not been able to answer, which is precisely which genes play the or at least a major role in the regulation of body weight in humans and therefore confer susceptibility or resistance to obesity, and exactly what changes in those genes are responsible for their effects. This, I think, is now possible in a way that even two or three years ago it was not, and the technology that will allow this is the access that we and others have to instruments that can actually sequence a human being's DNA right down to the last, as we say, nucleotide, so that we're going to be able to answer the question, which of these genes and which variants of these genes is playing the major role as we've been talking about, knowing that is only the very first sort of baby step towards being able, A, to predict risk, and B, even better, to be able to use that information to prevent or effectively treat uh,
1: obesity. Well, we'll look forward to that time when, yeah. when we get to that point, and thank you for your important work in the field. You've truly been a guiding light, and I very much appreciate you joining us today. Thank you very much. Our guest today was Dr. Rudolph Leibel. Christopher J. Murphy, Professor of Diabetes Research, Professor of Pediatrics and Medicine at Columbia University, and one of the country's leading scholars on body weight regulation, particularly genetic aspects of it. I welcome you to visit our website, www.yalerudcenter.org, for a list of a variety of excellent resources, including a list of the other podcasts that we have recorded with guests who have been to the Rudd Center. Thank you.